I don't think anyone during the campaign seriously thought that Mexico would pay for that wall. Yeah, how would they get that impression? Who would have told them that? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's one reason. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast 106.7 KSO in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1, in Palinville, New York on WLPP 102.9 FM, in Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, Washington, D.C.'s 105.5, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We're also heard streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe every day of the week. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth, five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us, but once again, we are uh, shuffling things around, even as we speak here, to try and uh, fit in. Desi Doyen, what, who was it that uh, uh, said, um, who called it Trump O'Clock? Oh. <laughs> Somebody on, on the Twitters? Yes, it was Kyle Griffin, a producer at MSNBC, who, by the way, is a great follow. He's right on top of things. Well, but yeah, then, he called well, it, wow, he, Trump O'Clock is early today. Exactly what I was going to say. Comes in early today, uh, so we have had to change the... Uh, well, shuffle things around here at least uh, three or four times today. Um, and But I'm going to stick to, no matter what, uh, the Washington Post and this document dump of a sort. Uh, they dump these uh, complete transcripts from Donald Trump's phone calls from just after his inauguration with uh, the president of Mexico and with the prime minister of Australia. These are, of course, public documents Uh, as opposed to private emails uh, or some such that have been uh, released over the past year or two. But but they're not uh, these these types of transcripts are not usually released in full, at least not so soon uh, after, you know, maybe 10, 20 years down the line. For the presidential library. So exactly. Uh, So it's, it's unclear in this case who released these documents. But so far. The White House is not denying that they are accurate transcripts of these conversations. And I think, I think anyway, we'll see if my guest agrees in a moment. I I think they're actually fascinating and illustrative on a number of levels, both political levels and substantive levels. So we will be joined by our old friend Dave Johnson to talk about that momentarily and what, if anything, those uh, those transcripts tell us and what we can learn from them. In the meantime, as I said, things are moving quickly here today. Reuters uh, reports, along with Wall Street Journal, that special counsel Robert Mueller has impaneled a grand jury in Washington, D.C. 
to investigate allegations of Russia's interference in the 2016 elections. That, according to Wall Street Journal today, citing two unnamed people familiar with the matter. The grand jury began its work in recent weeks and uh, Reuters says is a sign that Mueller's inquiry into Russia's alleged efforts to influence the election uh, and whether it colluded with Donald Trump's campaign, uh, that is all ramping up, they say. Uh, NPR seems to confirm the Wall Street Journal report. Special Counsel Robert Mueller is using a grand jury in D.C. in connection with his investigation into Russian efforts to influence the 2016 presidential election and possible collusion between Russia and top aides to the Trump campaign, says NPR, according to a source with knowledge of the investigation, confirming the Wall Street Journal and Reuters report to NPR's Peter Overby. The source, however, did not want to be identified because of the sensitivity of the matter. CNN also seems to confirm this report, says the Justice Department uh, uh, Special Counsel Robert Mueller has issued grand jury subpoenas, relating to Donald Trump's jury, uh, Donald Trump Jr.'s 2016 meeting with a Russian lawyer at Trump Tower, according to a person familiar with the matter. So they are uh, confirming it even further, not just a special, uh, not just a grand jury being convened, but that that grand jury has now issued subpoenas specifically related to that June 2016 meeting with Donald Trump Jr., and Paul Manafort and uh, uh, Jared Kushner. CNN says the subpoena seeks both documents and testimony from people involved in the meeting. That meeting has drawn scrutiny since an email exchange beforehand indicated, at least to, uh, to Donald Trump Jr., that Russians were offering damaging information on Hillary Clinton. The Wall Street Journal first reported this today that Mueller... The former FBI director was using a grand jury. The latest developments, they say, signal that the former FBI director's investigation is, quote, growing in intensity, whatever that means, uh, in recent weeks. President Trump, of course, has maintained there was no collusion between Russia and his campaign during the 2016 election. He has repeatedly called Mueller's probe a witch hunt and news like that, which I just shared with you, fake news. A lawyer for President Trump said he has no information to suggest that the president is under under any sort of federal investigation. The Wall Street uh, Journal, uh, this is in response to the Wall Street Journal's report from AP. They note that grand juries are common vehicles to subpoena witnesses and records, though they do not suggest any criminal charges are near A grand jury in Virginia has been used to gather information as well on Michael Flynn earlier in this investigation, Trump's former national security advisor. Ty Cobb, yes, that's his name, (laughs) Ty Cobb, a special counsel to the president, said he was not aware that Mueller had started using a grand jury. Grand jury matters are typically secret, Cobb said. The White House favors anything that accelerates the conclusion of his work fairly, referring to uh, Robert Mueller. They say the White House is committed to fully cooperating with Mr. Mueller. John Dowd, another uh, attorney for Trump, said in a statement that the uh, to the Associated Press, with respect to the news of the federal grand jury, I have no reason to believe that the president is under investigation 
he did not elaborate to uh, to AP. Interesting points that <clears throat> the White House, at least from uh, from Ty Cobb there, uh, that that the White House is happy to participate with uh, Robert Mueller, that they are looking forward to anything that accelerates the conclusion of his work fairly. That is, of course, in contrast to uh, reports uh, from a whole bunch of sources at the White House that uh, Trump was looking at ways to get rid of Mueller, to fire uh, the special counsel via perhaps firing Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, and then appointing someone in his place during the uh, Senate recess, which is coming up, by the way, what, one week from now? Yes. Um, so I wonder if the Senate is going to keep someone in, in some way to keep uh, the Senate in session as they did during the Obama era to keep uh, recess appointments from being you mean occurring just in case Trump's uh, private speaking doesn't match with his <clears throat> lawyer's public statements? Well, this would seem to, uh, well, as I say, raise the intensity here and the reason that he might have to suddenly pull something like that. And in response to that, Congress, at least a few members of Congress, are trying to take some action here. Two members of the Senate Judiciary Committee today are moving to protect special counsel Robert Mueller's job, according to AP, putting forth new legislation that aims to ensure the integrity of current and future independent investigations. This is coming from Senator uh, Republican Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina and Democratic Senator Chris Coons of Delaware. They have a plan to introduce legislation Uh, that would allow any special counsel for the Department of Justice to challenge his or her removal in court with a review by a three-judge panel within 14 days of the challenge. And of note, the bill would be retroactive to May 17 of this year. That was the day that Mueller was appointed by Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein to investigate uh, all of this. Um, Tillis said, again, Republican Senator uh, Tom Tillis said it is critical that special counsels have the independence and resources they need to lead investigations, a back-end judicial review process to prevent unmerited removals of special counsel helps to ensure their investigatory independence, but also reaffirms our nation's systems, uh, system of checks and balances. This is not the first bill. Uh, to be brought forward. This is not the first piece of legislation to do something like this. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, who is um, a member of the Judiciary Panel, the Judiciary Committee, said last week that he was working on a similar bill that would prevent the firing of a special counsel without judicial review. Uh, He said that the firing of Mueller at the time, quote, would precipitate a firestorm that would be unprecedented in proportions. Again, coming from Republican Senator Lindsey Graham. So uh, there, there's a, a slight difference, I guess, to the way that uh, Graham's bill would uh, do the same thing. But in both cases, it looks like Republicans here, at least two of them, are quite and, and two uh, fairly senior uh, Republicans at this point, are uh, quite serious about trying to do something uh, in order to tie the hands of the president to uh, be able to fire uh, essentially fire the special counsel by firing the 
uh, attorney general and so on and so forth. Well, it would remain to be seen if the it could get more support in the Senate, either bill, if it could get support in the Republican-dominated House. And then, of course, if Trump would sign it. would have it. to be signed, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it could yep. just be a lot of hand-waving to say, hey, look, dude, red flag, don't go there. But who knows? With Trump, who knows? He yeah. might just blow right through that. Well, it would have to be signed by him. But like the uh, sanctions bill that he signed yesterday, uh, sanctions against Russia and North Korea and Iran, um, this was those were passed almost uh, unanimously in both houses of Congress, Republicans and Democrats alike. Uh, so it was a veto-proof majority. I think Trump essentially had no choice ultimately but to sign it. So I suppose if they passed a bill under circumstances like that, Trump might have to uh, sign it. But uh, as you note, Desi Doyen, that remains to be seen whether Donald Trump would uh, <laughs> would actually go there, would actually yeah. uh, sign it and whether enough Republicans would come on board uh, in both houses to uh, present a veto proof majority for such a bill. Speaking of before we get to our break and our guest here very quickly, um, uh, speaking of those uh, sanctions, I focused yesterday a little bit because everyone was talking about the sanctions against Russia, but uh, very few were talking about the sanctions against Iran and against North Korea and specifically Iran, because that was Bernie Sanders reason. He was the only non-Republican in either house to vote against that sanctions bill. There was uh, three Republicans in the House. One other Republican in the U.S. Senate to vote against the bill. That was Rand Paul. But Bernie Sanders was the only non-Republican. He's, of course, an independent from Vermont. His reason was uh, that these new sanctions against Iran would give Iran the the right or the ability to get out of the Iran uh, nuclear agreement. And very few people have been focusing on that. And sure enough, not long after we got off air from last night's show, Agence France Press reported breaking. Iran says nuclear deal violated by new U.S. sanctions. Exactly what Bernie Sanders had been uh, had been warning about. So whether Iran will now pull out of this meticulously crafted deal Frankly, and it was crafted with, what, about six other nations, uh, Russia, Germany, France, Great Britain. I want to uh, say China's in I there, think, too. I think but they might be. Yeah. Um, and it took about a year or two to do. Um, they may be ready to just pull out of this and uh, start building nukes again. Why? Because we don't have enough problems on this planet under this president, apparently, that we have to cause more of those. And by the way, that's not just Trump. That's uh, he didn't want to sign that bill, frankly, at all. That's on Republicans and Democrats. If Iran ends up pulling out in the in Congress, if they end up pulling out of that uh, out of that deal, we'll keep our eyes on that. But speaking of problems around the planet, let's take a quick break. We'll come back uh, with Dave Johnson on these remarkable transcripts of these phone calls with President Trump and uh, the uh, the chiefs of state in both Mexico and Australia just after Trump took office. Anything to learn from those? We'll find out right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast.
Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. We're going to Mexico, but uh, we're going to have to go via New Jersey and New Hampshire to get there for the moment. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. A report earlier this week from Sports Illustrated, of all places, quotes Donald Trump as telling members of his of his uh, golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey, that he travels there frequently on weekends because, after all, quote, the White House is a real dump. That, of course, counters his public statements about the White House, uh, which he has uh, described as a great and wonderful place. And, of course, uh, some have taken great offense at that comment, suggesting that if, say, someone like Barack Obama had ever called the White House a real dump, it would cost his presidency dearly. But, of course, as we all know, there are different measures, it seems, for Republicans versus Democrats particularly uh, those in the White House. In any event, Donald Trump took to Twitter on Wednesday night to deny the report that he called the White House a real dump, tweeting instead, I love the White House, one of the most beautiful buildings, homes I have ever seen. But fake news said I called it a dump. Totally untrue. That last part is in all caps, so he extra definitely certainly means it. Does he not, Desi Doyen? You know, <laughs> yes, he does. All caps, you can't deny it. Now, whether or not uh, he said that uh, comment about the, uh, the White House being a dump may or may not be true. We don't have a tape of him saying it. And in truth, I don't think it really much matters other than to help serve as more political fodder for partisans, as if we needed more of that right now. But, of course, people speak differently in private versus uh, the way they speak in public. And now, now that the Washington Post today has published actual transcripts from phone calls that Donald Trump had just after his inauguration, phone calls with the president of Mexico and the prime minister of Australia, I'd say, in truth, it adds a bit of weight to the Sports Illustrated report about Trump calling the White House a real dump. That seems to be kind of how Donald Trump speaks in private, or at least when he thinks he's in private. In the transcript of Trump's uh, January 27 phone call, this was just seven days after he'd been sworn in, with uh, Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto. Uh, and, and these seems to be official transcripts, by the way. The White House is not denying them, even if they were uh, not authorized by the White House for release to the uh, to the public. In that conversation with the Mexican president, Trump refers to the state of New Hampshire as, quote, a drug infested den. As TPM reports, that did not sit well with one New Hampshire senator, Senator Maggie Hassan, 
Democrat of New Hampshire, took to the uh, took to Twitter on Thursday morning to express her disdain for the president's comments, calling them disgusting and defending her state against the insult. New Hampshire, she said, has, quote, a substance misuse crisis, just like other states across the U.S. that are combating the opioid epidemic, she tweeted. Instead of insulting people in the throes of addiction, POTUS needs to work across party lines to actually stem the tide of this crisis, the junior senator said, adding, to date, POTUS has proposed policies that would severely set back our efforts to combat this devastating epidemic. Of course, Hassan is a Democrat, so what does she know? But New Hampshire's uh, governor, Chris Sununu, on the other hand, is a Republican, and he said he was not much happier about the remarks. The president is wrong, Sununu said in a statement, adding that uh, the comments were disappointing mischaracterizations of his state and the epidemic health crisis they are battling. Trump reportedly won the GOP primary contest in New Hampshire, but lost the state to Democratic uh, candidate Hillary Clinton during the general election by a narrow margin. He, of course, has claimed he would have won it, but for his unsubstantiated, uh, in fact, rejected claim, rejected even by Republican Party officials from New Hampshire that we've had on this show, uh, the, the claim that he would have won it if not for thousands of illegal votes cast in the state. Nonetheless, he seemed to suggest otherwise to the president of Mexico. There are many such revelations to be taken from these public transcripts of what Donald Trump clearly believed were otherwise private conversations with the heads of state from Mexico and Australia. And it's my sense, um, we'll see what my guest has to say about this and what Desi has to say about it, but uh, it's my assessment they do not make Donald Trump look very good or very knowledgeable on everything from trade policy with Mexico to immigration policy with Australia. Uh, although in both cases, I think the Mexican president and the Australian prime minister themselves, they come off looking pretty good. Here to try and help us make sense of what we can learn, if anything, from these transcripts published by the Washington Post is our old friend and a very wise one as well, Dave Johnson. Until recently, Dave was a senior fellow at People's Action, the progressive policy organization formerly known as the Campaign for America's Future. Dave is still the founder of SeeingTheForest.com, which has just celebrated its 15th anniversary, its 15th year of progressive analysis and troublemaking bloggery. Dave Johnson, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. Hey, it's good to be on. Thank good you. To talk to you. Uh, and to you, uh, congratulations on the 15th anniversary at Seeing the Forest, Dave. Uh, it seems you are just slightly older than the Brad blog there. Uh, but it's good to see there are still some old-timers, old-time bloggers out there fighting the, the good blog fight, my friend. Old-timer. Great. <laughs> old-time <laughs> blogger. Not you, but uh, okay. the blogger. The blogger. <laughs> hey, in blog years, 15 years is like, That's, I don't know, a thousand in dog years. That is yeah, a, really. a really long time. Uh, well, as, as long as I, uh, uh, I mentioned uh, New Hampshire here, uh, how, how do you suppose uh, describing New Hampshire as a drug-infested den plays to uh, voters, especially primary voters in the first-in-the-nation primary state of New Hampshire um, for what Trump hopes to be a re-election campaign in a few years. Does does such a description have any effect, really, two or three years from now, Dave? Probably not, but it, it just goes, as they're saying about almost everything about Trump, it goes to a pattern. 
of, of conduct. And I mean, I mean, just we just see these things over and over again. The lack of respect or preparation for people, for uh, citizens, for states. You know, it's just uh, it's just one more thing. And sticking with politics for the moment, uh, before we get to substance, because there's some substantive policy in this uh, conversation with the Mexican president on January 27. But uh, we'll get so we'll get to some of that in a second. Uh, but uh, politically, it seems to me there are some problematic issues here for the president. His insistence in this conversation with Peña Nieto, for example, that even though he knew Mexico wouldn't really pay for the border wall, uh, at least that's what he seems to be indicating. He he told uh, Peña Nieto, "quote You cannot say that to the press." that you're not going to pay for the wall. The press is going to to go with that, and I cannot live with that. You cannot say that to the press because I cannot negotiate under those circumstances. But uh, he maintained his insistence that uh, uh, the president, the Mexican president, remain quiet about the issue. He said, you cannot say anymore that the U.S. is going to pay, isn't going, is going to pay for the wall I'm just going to say that we are working on working it out. Believe it or not, this is the least important thing that we are talking about. But politically, this might be the most important talk. So he's threat. He seems to be. Is it is it your read, Dave, that he he seems to be sort of uh, strong arming, playing hardball politics here with the uh, with the Mexican president on that point? In, in the context of the whole transcript, yes, for sure. There's there's a lot of this hardball, acrimonious, uh, bullying kind of stuff. Now, when you talk about the politics, you and I will often be shocked at a lot of things that Trump says, and then we'll find out that it actually makes him look good to mm-hmm. what they call his base. Right. We, we keep going, oh, my God, and then nothing comes of it. And, and because of the, the characteristics like authoritarian style and this and that, but this could be one more thing that maybe the, his base types will look at, because in, a, in essence right here he's saying, you know, I only said this about the wall for politics. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so we can't let it out that no, we're, you're not going to pay for the wall, etc. And in fact, they're probably not even going to build a wall. But so that could be something. But we've always got to keep in mind that you know, you and I, we're going to see things a lot differently from how. I mean, when we say, okay, mm-hmm. so he's bullying the president of Mexico, his crowd's going to say, oh, great. Or, or the lack of preparedness mm-hmm. we see in this, the lack of uh, respect we see in this, you know, that would play positively politically to a lot of Trump voters. Well, uh, yeah, that's what I was I was thinking about. But then, you know, the reality is here he's sort of admitting that, no, we're not going to make Mexico pay for the wall. Uh, and, and so I'm wondering if that even becomes a problem for Trump uh, or if not for Trump. A problem for Republicans running next year. I'm asking, uh, for example, Dave, because uh, Congressman Francis Rooney, just by way of one example, was was on CNN today. He was pressed on the president's comments about the wall uh, and, you know, sort of admitting, yeah, we know Mexico's not going to pay for it. And Rooney said no one could really believe that Mexicans were going to pay for the wall before describing it as uh, really a metaphor for border security. Here's here's a bit of that conversation, Dave. Knowing what you know from this transcript, which the White House is not disputing openly, do you think he was straight and honest with the American people? Well, I don't think anyone really thought that the Mexicans were going to pay for a wall. I mean, regardless of a boisterous campaign or post-campaign comment, 
You know, these politicians, these professional politicians make comments all the time. President Trump was not a professional politician, so maybe it, he made even some more comments that might be disputed later. But the bottom line is, no one could really believe that Mexicans were going to pay for a wall, and no one would believe that we don't need to secure our borders. So those are two uh, asymmetrical concepts there. Really? No one could believe that? Uh, Rooney, uh, apparently... While he never called for Mexico to pay for the border when uh, during his own campaign in 2016, his first uh, campaign ad, and he's a big name uh, GOP donor and and uh, one time ambassador to the Vatican, uh, he strongly called for a border wall, and one of his advertisements was literally called "Wall." in which he bragged about his experience in the construction industry, quote, saying, so I know a thing or two about building walls in Congress. I'll fight to build a big one on our southern border. Um, Dave, is the wall just a metaphor for border security to Trump voters, as Rooney suggests, or is this kind of thing going to be a problem now for folks like Rooney next year? Well, this is, a, this is a, an interesting analysis here. The metaphor idea. Now, first of all, Trump in the transcripts is saying it's a problem for me politically mm -hmm. if you say we're not going to pay for the wall. But here's the metaphor. Here's what's really happening in this saying we're going to build a wall and we're going to make them pay for it. That's that's not about making them pay for it. That's by pay for it. He's talking about humiliating them. Mm saying that, saying we're going to build this wall and we're going to make them pay for it. It's like we're going to go down there and we're going to pull down their pants. <laughs> See what I'm trying to say? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's humiliating here. And so the metaphor is not a metaphor of of border security. It's a metaphor of humiliation. And so for the Mexican president to come back and stand up and say, we're not going to pay for that wall. See, that's not, that's not undercutting Trump saying... Mm we're going to pay for it. That's undercutting Trump saying we're humiliating them. And that's what you guys want to see is you want to see these people, these dark skinned people humiliated and whatever. That's the, that's the uh, victimhood, the mm -hmm. uh, perceived slight, the payback metaphor more than the actual financial pay for the wall. Well, let's talk about the actual financial pay. Well, uh, uh, there because there is substance here above the politics. It seems clear to me that Trump was sort of threatening Peña Nieto that he actually he wanted to just slap a border tax of some type on Mexico, but that he was willing to try and work some kind of a a, a new deal out with uh, Mexico first. What sort of tax is Trump actually talking about there? And, and then we can discuss if the president even has the power to impose such a tax at all. Well, in the transcripts, Trump's saying different things. One of them, and what he said during the campaign and other times, is that he's going to slap a tax on them. There are some uh, ways that the president could actually slap a tax when there's a reason, but the problem with that is... There's a process for that. So the idea behind this is that we have developed this big trade deficit mm -hmm. with Mexico and a lot of other countries. Uh, economists can talk about that, but here, here's the basics of it is they sell us more stuff than we sell them, mm -hmm. and there's an imbalance. And what we've done is we have closed factories here, opened them up there, and now they say, oh, that's great because that increases trade. Well. It's the same goods in the same stores here, but now they cross the border, so they're saying we increased trade. 
The problem now is that the supply chains, the people who fix up the factories, the people who work in the factories, et cetera, et cetera, have moved over there. There's back and forth stuff. that It gets pretty complicated. When you listen to this, Trump actually doesn't understand what it really means, but he's saying let's we're going to have to rebalance that trade deficit, and he thinks he thinks that we can just tell Mexico to close those factories and the jobs will immediately open up here, which is just completely wrong. There's so many factors involved. So, so he threatens them, saying we're going to put on a 35% tax. He also says particular industries. That's a key that he's been talking to someone and sort of understands it. So, so that's what is behind this idea. It is unimplementable the way Trump's talking about it, and furthermore, the process won't allow it. I know you want to get into some more details well, about it. So go well, ahead. no, no, I, I, I just does the the president have this power? He actually says at one point, uh, where is it? He says uh, something. Uh, I have tremendous power to tax. I can't find it. Uh, oh, here we go. I've been given as president tremendous taxation powers for trade and for other reasons, far greater than anybody understands. The powers of taxation are tremendous for the president. And if yes, you study that, you will see what I mean. That is why I did not want to have the meeting. I just wanted to have the border tax. So is it true? Does he have the power to slap on a 35 percent tax on uh, okay. those goods? First of all, the Constitution of the United States makes it very clear that revenue raising bills begin in the House of Representatives. The president can't just say, we're going to tax this. Mm -hmm. There are trade rules that let him respond to certain situations with certain kinds of taxes, but there's a process for that. I imagine maybe, you know, in some weird world he possibly could, but here's, a, here's what I thought of as a good way to, to compare this. Mm -hmm. The other day Trump tweeted out that, okay, we're going to ban trans people from the military. Just mm -hmm. right now, as of now, they're all banned, right? Right. Well, nothing's happened. Right. First of all, there's a process to do that. He has that power, but nobody's done anything. The Pentagon even tweeted out, said, well, we're not going to do anything until we get an actual legal order from the president. Mm -hmm. We can't make policy based on a tweet. So there's a process. They're supposed to, the Pentagon's supposed to have the long planning process, they evaluate it. They say, does this really cost this much money? You know, they look it over. They apply analysis and expertise to it. And then in the end, they come up with a policy. But before it's announced, first of all, they have a rollout plan, but they also have an implementation plan. I mean, what happens to people you're fighting? You're in a foxhole in Afghanistan, and the president tweets this out. What does that mean? <laughs> you're a trans person fighting you get the idea. So there's yeah. a process, and it's the same process for those tax powers the president might have. He had, Like right now we're talking about steel, responding to steel dumping from China. Mm -hmm. There's a process, and, and we might come up with some tariffs slapped on in response. Okay, so that's how that would work. And then the other way it would work is that the Congress decides to do... Uh, something that they can do that's not been limited by our trade agreements, okay? If the president just did something, first of all, Mexico would just go to the World Trade Organization, and right or wrong, the World Trade Organization can do something about it. And okay? that's, that's no. because NAFTA itself right. bars that sort of thing. The agreement that we're in, whether you like it or not, that sets, yeah. that keeps the president from being able to do that, correct? Yeah, NAFTA and other trade agreements mm -hmm. limit our 
democratic processes from doing things that we the people might decide we want to do. Mm-hmm. Correct. I might have just given away my uh, well, that's, feelings about trade. Yeah, yeah, no, there's <laughs> one, that's one of the problems with it. Nonetheless, yeah. whether and we can talk about that in a second, but whether you like NAFTA or not, there are certain rules that the yeah, president yeah. doesn't seem to, doesn't get to just overcome at a whim because he feels right. like it. There's a process. There's a yeah. democratic society. You know, we have a, a government, we have processes, etc. Trump doesn't know that and doesn't care. And the question we all face, of course, is to what extent is our society going to be able to respond to his just going ahead and doing stuff? Yeah. And, and and I get the sense that he doesn't even seem to understand when he talks about these taxes. He says we're going to tax Mexico. We're going to tax China. Um, right. It's actually a tax, any such tax, if he was able to do it, with his, either with his own authority or with uh, Congress's uh, authority, these are not taxes on Mexico, per se, or on China, per se. These are actually taxes that the U.S. consumer ends up paying on these goods that come in from these countries, right? Well, yeah, and if, if we were to, like, slap a tariff on Ford uh, cars, etc., mm-hmm. that are made in Mexico now, mm-hmm. after some amount of time, there might be an economic reason those factories move back. But in the meantime, I mean, the factories... Go look at Flint. <laughs> Go look at Detroit and see what those factories look like today. So mm-hmm. you you got to build them. you got to come up with the supply chains we've lost. you got to have training for the people that are going to work. You've know, you got to have training for the, you know, it's this huge, huge process over time that would unfold. But what would immediately happen is that you'd have to pay 35% more for that car if he slaps a 35% tariff. We would have to, the the Americans would have to pay that. Yeah, Yeah. okay. Yeah, but over many years, it would lead to that. There there are better ways to accomplish that kind of longer-term process than just... uh, suddenly, you know, disrupting everything we know about how it's done today. And, and I don't, I, the reason I sort of bring it up is because in reading this transcript, I'm not clear that, and, and uh, frankly, I've thought about this uh, for the last year or two as he was, you know, campaigning and talking about this. It's not clear to me that Donald Trump really understands that this exactly. sort of attacks would affect Americans uh, and uh, American consumers. Yeah, it's actually very, very clear to me in reading this that he has no idea that not only will it hurt American consumers, it will very specifically hurt the people in his base, in red states, Mm. who rely on cheap imports uh, Mm. via Walmart to be able to have a very high quality of life based on, you know, the amount of money that they make. And a border adjustment tax would severely raise prices on on average and low-income Americans who voted primarily for Trump. Um, the, The House recently recently ditched the border adjustment tax in their uh, budget proposal that they're putting through their legislation. And the retail industry was ecstatic that they dropped it. And they said, actually, thank you to Republicans for dropping this border adjustment tax because of the cost that it would add to retail. Well, let me let me throw something in here, because it's not a good I don't feel like it's a good thing for progressives to argue against certain policies by saying they would raise Oh, I'm not arguing against it. I'm just saying, you know, that, hey, he doesn't understand. Oh, he doesn't understand. But a minimum wage, for example, Mm -hmm. they say, oh, that'll raise prices. Or, you know, stopping the TPP. Well, if we don't uh, transfer labor to Vietnam where it's 15 cents an hour, that'll raise prices. Well, so the argument itself about prices is, is, in the short term, it's about the incredible disruption. 
if uh, yes, it would raise prices 35% with no alternative paths. Now, what would that mean? Ford trucks suddenly and cars suddenly are 35% more. Well, guess what? Uh, Korean cars don't come from Mexico. <laughs> so guess what happens? Our American mm-hmm. Ford Motor Company all of a sudden loses literally almost all of its sales of everything they might make there mm-hmm. because Korean companies, and then suddenly our trade deficit with Korea, talk about skyrocketing way past what our trade deficit with Mexico is. In other words, again, there's a process. There's a reason. They talk about burdensome and cumbersome government. Well, there's the reason for that. There's a process. You think these things through. I, Nothing Trump's doing is thought through. Exactly. It's and just I, like this, this knee-jerk reaction. The other thing that comes out of these calls, by the way, not just that he doesn't understand things, but here's this guy, and he's having these calls with world leaders. There's no sign of preparation of any kind. There's no sign he's got an agenda in front of him or talking points or the things that we're trying to work out with these countries or the issues he wants to bring up. There's no sign of it at all in these transcripts. He's just, you know, takes a call and he talks about, oh, God, I've got more votes than anybody and I'm the greatest and there's bad hombres over there. No sign of any understanding of issues or caring at all about him. I I note uh, also, and this is true in the conversation with the Australian prime minister as well, that uh, though, you know, Peña Nieto calls him Mr. President and President Trump throughout, uh, Trump calls him Enrique. Yeah. And he calls Turnbull Malcolm. Uh, I don't suspect that's an accident. Uh, In truth, I think it uh, may be meant to sort of belittle him. I don't know if it's a good idea or not in this sort of uh in these sort of conversations but it was it was striking because it was very much not the way these sorts of conversations at least to my understanding are supposed to go dave uh johnson i gotta take a quick break here but let me give you one i don't know if you can hit this real quickly or not but peña nieto and then we'll move to australia because i want to talk about australia uh, not literally moved to Australia, but I am thinking about it at this point. Anyway, uh, Peña Nieto uh, talks about the importance of the NAFTA agreement between U.S., Canada, and Mexico, that he feels everyone can work out any problems that there are within the NAFTA agreement, and Trump sort of snaps at him. He says, quote, Well, Canada is no problem. Do not worry about Canada. Do not even think about them. This is a separate thing, and they are fine, and we have... We have had a very fair relationship with Canada. It has been much more balanced and much more fair, so we do not have to worry about Canada. We do not even have to think about them. So, quick question. A, is there any truth to that? Does NAFTA work better with Canada than it does with Mexico? Uh, And B, uh, I know there are problems that do need to be fixed with uh, NAFTA, be it with Mexico or Canada. So, speak to that, and I know I said do it quickly and gave you huge questions. I do it really quickly. Go ahead. All right. Miller talking about this immigration law said we only want English-speaking people coming to this country. I think that's the core, the root of what Trump's thinking is there. So there's not a substantive difference between uh, the problems in NAFTA with Canada versus Mexico, as you understand it. Uh, we're not we're not moving as many factories to Mexico to Canada and using Canada as a low-wage place because Canada's wages are higher. That's that's the only real difference there. We do have trade deficit. There are some problems, uh, but I don't believe he understands that, and I don't believe that's what he's even thinking. 
All right. When he talks, he talks about bad hombres in the call too. Yeah, which not offensive. If you at know all. what I mean. Yes, <laughs> not offensive at all. Dave Johnson, uh, sit still uh, for a moment here. I want to take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll talk about Australia, uh, which was. An even more bizarre uh, conversation, this uh, transcript that was published by the Washington Post. Uh, Take a quick break. We'll come back and talk about that with Dave Johnson from SeeingTheForest.com. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. We rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com speaking with my guest Dave Johnson of seeingtheforest.com now in their 15th year of very fine progressive bloggery. Uh, the uh, we're, we're talking about these uh, transcripts of these phone calls and uh, private I guess, or at least unreleased transcripts, but they are public transcripts, but they just aren't released publicly normally. Somehow, transcripts with the Mexican president and the Australian president between uh, uh, Prime Minister, uh, between them and Donald Trump from just days after he was sworn in, have leaked out somehow from the White House or from somewhere. Uh, and we've been talking about the uh, conversation with the Mexican president, but the transcript of his conversation with Australian's conservative prime minister, Malcolm Turnbull, was uh, arguably even much testier, in which uh, Trump gets increasingly irritated about the fact that Turnbull is insisting that the U.S. honor the agreement uh, that was struck under the Obama administration to con- to at least consider admitting some 1,250 to 2,000 immigrants that have been held for nearly three years on islands off of uh, Australia's coast uh, because those refugees arrived by boat. Trump is re- repeatedly reassured by Turnbull in this call that these people have been vetted, that even uh, U.S. officials have vetted these people, and that they are economic refugees. They're not from, you know, war refugees. And that America could, if they wanted, to actually reject them if they wanted, according to the deal struck under Obama. But the call is ultimately ended by Trump without getting to the other issues uh, that they were going to speak about. Uh, Dave Johnson, what strikes you about that conversation with uh, between uh, President Trump and Prime Minister Turnbull? Well, this is sort of an aside, but the first thing that strikes me is here's Trump squealing. You know, all the people are squealing about the release of transcripts of private conversations, which is what uh, WikiLeaks did, as I recall, mm-hmm. with uh, DNC transcripts. Well, and actually, those transcripts, those were actually private emails. I mean, these are yes, public... Yeah, this is, this is public... Uh, conversations. Public uh, property, yeah. I guess you'd call it. Right. Yeah. I'm not sure that Turnbull is a conservative, and I think that's part of the, what's behind this. The first thing I want to point out, 
Well, he's, 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 he's the head of the, the Labour Party, which is the Conservative Party in Australia. He's a former businessman. Liberal, Liberal Party, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the, it's called the Liberal yeah. Party, but it's actually the Conservative Party Yeah, but, you know, we're Australia. talking about somebody who's more of what would, we would have thought of as a traditional conservative, somebody who's still sane for the yeah, most well, part. Right. <laughs> yeah, there, there's that. Right. Yeah. yeah, well, he's wealthy. Right. And so there's a thing right there. He's not as wealthy as Trump, so Trump's going to see him in a certain way from that because... He's only got two hundred million or so. That's mm-hmm. probably part of what's going on here. But here's this guy, and he's trying to say, "Look, our countries have a deal," and Trump's saying, "I don't care. Deals, deals don't mean anything." If you, how many times he says right in there? How many times have you uh, just gone off on a bad deal? You know, not mm-hmm. done it. Just say, "No, I'm not going to do it because it's a bad deal." So right there is something that comes right out of this that hasn't been noted, I don't think, as much as that. There's this deal that the United States would take some of these refugees. These people are coming over in boats and they're, they're, they're uh, bringing them in from sea and they're, they're actually confining them and the reason for that and that they're grabbing them is because they're trying to do a disincentive on human trafficking, mm-hmm. which is going on there, which is people taking a bunch of money, stuffing a boat full of people, bringing them over and, and getting rich from that. Mm-hmm. So by, as he called it, he's getting rid of the product by grabbing them at sea and putting them in this camp, which also, by the way, is uh, very bad conditions that they're in. So they've been trying to find other countries that will help take some of these people, and they made a deal with the U.S. in exchange for, uh, I think it was to take certain other people there from that come up here from from south, south and, and central, central america. america yeah yeah exactly and trump's saying oh, i don't care if it's a deal i don't care about deals okay that's one of the things that stands out here but the the uh once again the absolute lack of preparation understanding there's there's clearly no people from the state department have been talking to trump in front of before this meeting to prepare him for the details of the deal in the mission. He just doesn't care. And it seemed that uh, T- Turnbull seemed like he was trying to help Trump, that he understood yeah. Trump's political uh, issues the, as the far as refugees. The bind that Trump had put himself in. And this was just the day yep. after, I think, uh, Trump had issued his travel ban, uh, uh, barring all refugees, supposedly, for 120 days from yep. all countries. But uh, Turnbull seemed to be trying to sort of get him off the hook, saying, hey... You can reject these people if you want. Right. It's built into the deal. All you can do, he even uses the word extreme vetting on them. Uh, but you must, uh, you know, at least go through the motions of the deal that was struck under Obama. Right. He's even trying to say, look, look what we're doing. We've taken, uh, taken uh, thousands and thousands of Syrian, 12,000 Syrian refugees, 90% of which will be Christians. He points that out to Trump. Yes. And all of these other things, he's trying to say it's not a sectarian thing. Practice, you know, there's all through this is this guy trying to be reasonable with Trump, and Trump just simply hating. He says, "I'm not going to take him. I don't take immigrants. We don't take immigrants here. We're going to stop it." Just hating the idea of any immigrants coming to the United States. Just, and, and it's not something political in this case. He just hates them, and he, <laughs> and he makes it very clear in this call. He, he did not seem to understand uh, the Australian ban on immigration uh, or on immigrants, on refugees coming in via boat. Trump just didn't seem to get it. And uh, while more apparently more than 50 percent of Australians actually are 
immigrants or refugees or have right. at least one parent that is not native to Australia. So they, they're very welcoming of immigrants there, but they have this strict rule, as you noted, uh, to, to keep the uh, the, 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 the people who are smug, the people smugglers, I guess, from doing this via vote, but also because uh, a lot of people die uh, right. being smuggled in at sea. But Trump did not seem to even kept bringing it up. What, what is this thing about boats? He did not understand their no right. boat immigration policy. And meanwhile, by the way, Australia is taking in refugees. Just you can't come there by boat. Right. They're trying to stop this dangerous, deadly trafficking thing. Yeah. Like he said, 12,000 refugees from Syria. So, and Trump just doesn't get it. And this guy is trying to talk to him, trying to be nice, trying to say, look, I understand, I hear you. But now one time he says, and, oh, and Trump, Trump starts going off on side uh, conversations and in all these different things. And here's uh, <laughs> Trump. Turnbull says, uh, can you hear me out, Mr. President? Yes. Trump goes, yes. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, yeah. I, I noticed that as well, that he constantly yeah. has to redirect Trump's attention yep. back to the subject that they're talking about. Yep. And so then he says, look, there's this deal. We should respect deals. And Trump says, who made this deal? Obama? <laughs> yeah. You know, and it just it just goes on like that. And oh, and then uh, then uh, Trump starts talking about how, look, they took all these dark skinned people in Germany and it's changing the character of Germany. All this kind of Stephen Miller, you know, uh, mm. white power stuff almost that they talk about, yeah. white genocide kind of stuff they talk about. And and uh, then he goes back to it, and he keeps going back and back about how, no, we don't do immigrants anymore here, and this and that. And it doesn't matter what the security is. It doesn't. So then uh, Turnbull's trying to explain to him, as you said, he's trying to explain to him, look, all you're required to do is vet them. You don't have to take them. You simply have to say, okay, we're going to honor our side of the deal, but we're going to give them extreme vetting. It can even take years. Trump says, no, no, no. I he, does, he doesn't get it. He's hostile. He's angry. And, and in the end, by the way, he hangs up on the guy. So, yeah. Well, One thing I noticed, by the way, reading this, this is January, comparing it to, I don't know if, if you have seen the transcripts of the full interview of the New York Times, and especially the one that just came out with the Wall Street Journal, that the Wall Street Journal chose not to uh, reveal to the public most mm -hmm. of it and just used highlights, but yep. it leaked out. There's a difference. Trump actually has coherent sentences in these transcripts. As bad as they are, as uneducated, ill-informed, unprepared as they are, if you compare them to the New York Times and Wall Street Journal transcripts, hmm. you see a, a market deterioration in this guy in that amount of time. I think. Really interesting point, because these yeah. uh, both these conversations uh, with Australia and Mexico, these were from just days after the uh, inauguration, just seven right. days afterwards. And right. you're right, those... Uh, transcripts that came out uh, just this past week are much more incoherent. Yeah, yeah, I hate to they say it, wander. but yeah, yeah. They, they, you know, he's not even sure who he's talking to. Apparently, in some of them, and here at least he knows enough to to bully people by using their first names. I've had to, <laughs> in my corporate life, I've had bosses that play that game. You know, Dave, and if you try to say Bob, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, that's the sense I get. Uh, because Pen yeah. Nieto, <clears throat> Nieto, and I've got just a, a minute or two here left, Dave, uh, <laughs> is uh, he comes across very professional and diplomatic and deferential throughout. So does Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, right. As you noted, uh, from Australia, um, Trump does not come across that way. But is it unfair 
to read too much into these. Uh, you know, Trump did not think uh, these would become uh, would become public. Uh, the you know the other uh, chiefs of heads of state seem to understand there's a certain protocol, but he didn't think these were going to be made public. I guess, and he was just seven days in. Are, are we being too hard on him? No, you you're not being hard enough. Look, this is first impression stuff. This is the new leader of the United States of America having his first conversations with the other leaders in the world, uh, he might think they're not going to be public, but he can't think these guys are not going to be talking to each other, men and women, that he talks to around the world. And as you know now, they've, they've started talking about things like his, his handshakes and they're working with each other for strategies and stuff. But to think that, that these leaders don't talk to each other about the shocking experiences they're having with the President of the United States, when you read these... You, you feel like, oh, my God, these people are going to all start talking to each other about what this guy did. They're also going to come up with strategies for dealing with this nut. You know, and, you know, the only thing he wants to hear about is how great he is. And I understand some of these leaders are now starting to come to him and say, well, you're like the greatest person ever in order as a strategy to start getting things they want out of the United States, whether they should get them or not kind of a thing. So no, I don't think yeah. we're being hard on him at all. We're not being hard enough. On what this means. Well, uh, what so you it, got me shouting. Yeah, <laughs> no, I figured we would. I figured we'd get you worked up. Yeah, uh, Dave Johnson, I got to get out. Uh, always uh, great to talk to you here. Thank you for letting me uh, call you at the last minute to to try to help me make sense of of this because it is just uh, kind of nuts. People should read these transcripts in full because yeah. uh, it's stri- more striking than the articles about them if you read yeah. the actual transcripts yes. at Washington Post. Dave uh, Johnson. Uh, of seeingtheforest.com, now in its 15th year. Dave, uh, always great talking to you, my friend, and we will call you in another emergency soon, no doubt. (laughs) Thanks for having me on, Mr. Friedman. I love it. (laughs) Thank you, Mr. Johnson. Okay, I got to get out. Uh, My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, as well, and to you for spending a portion of your day with us. It is, as ever, greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's program, You can download it and all of the others at bradblog.com for free, though we thank you mightily if you stop by bradblog.com slash donate while you're there. Helps us continue to stay on your public airwaves. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you can find, follow, and share us worldwide, pretty please, at the Bradblog. All right. That's it. Until Trump o'clock tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.